following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcasting Network. For a full list of our shows, as well as breaking sports news and engaging feature stories, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com. Tales from the association, yeah, it's going down. This the podcast, yeah, you heard it all around. Players hit us with that career, cause you know that basketball, man, is not always there. Sometimes it come and go from the recruitment to the college phase, back to the NBA draft, yeah, that's nowadays. Playing internationally, and at the life at a basketball, man, they gonna tell us all how it go. See, story is how now, now you know. Tales from the association. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to this week's episode of Tales from the Association. I'm Chris Horvadell. Today I'm joined by a former NBA first round pick who suffered a major injury and eventually found his way to coaching in China, Greg Miner. Greg, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely. And special thanks to AC Earl who connected us. Former great guest AC Earl. Thank you, sir. So let, let's get to let's get to your story, and we're going to start back in Georgia. Mm-hmm. You attended Washington County High School in Sandersville, where you were a star for those Golden Hawks. What was the college recruiting process like for you? Well, it, it was interesting. That it, interesting that you, you you starting off at that, at this point. Um, yeah, looking back on it, it was it was it was okay. Um, you know, I was one of the probably I think the next five star athlete mm-hmm. were maybe a couple hours away from me. So um, wherever we went as a basketball team, um, even from a little small city of Sandersville, we had a large follow- following, or even the people that we played against. So it was even though I was in a small environment, it was a really big deal with all the surrounding counties. Mm-hmm. So what was how was that experience for you? Obviously the you know the recruiting process has been in the news quite a bit lately. Uh you know how did you find your experience personally? Well, it was a great experience, you know. It got tiresome at some point. Yeah. Um you know, we started receiving letters here and there, but um um you know, certainly in the beginning, you know, receiving letters from this university or from that university and you're like, wow, these are the te- these are the schools that I couldn't have dreamed of or even even attending. But sure. um, um, it was it was a really really cool experience. But as it got t- towards the tail end, you know, you got tired of saying you want to just hide and <laughs> and not be not deal with anyone or or anybody. That's including your family members. You know, I've never really looked at this before, but I think it's an, it's just an interesting parallel to be made between the beginning of that recruiting process. And sort of what you experience when you get further into the NBA and your popularity and national national acclaim rises a little bit is is the, was that sort of the end of your anonymity? Oh, can you repeat that? I'm sorry, Chris. I, I oh, I, I said no, no problem. So I said um, I think there's an interesting parallel there with the recruiting and how tiresome it might get to mm-hmm. to once you get into the NBA. And all of a sudden, you're a, a, a national figure. Was that recruiting process kind of the end of any anonymity for for Greg Miner? 
Well, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think, <clears throat> I think if, if I'm, if I'm hearing correctly, it's just, it, I would think it was more like the beginning, hmm. um, to, to things, and you know, certainly going to the university and making the right choices there, and and following the right regimen and listening to some of the guys that actually, you know, um, were playing the NBA or playing overseas. Those those guys really were were um, tremendous and, and and great people and sharing their stories. And mm-hmm. you know, those are the things that I think for me as a young player at that particular time wanted to do. Um, that's something that I wanted to be a part of, whether it was playing in the NBA or playing overseas. I wanted to use basketball as a tool to in, enhance my life. Sure. What What was the reason you ended up picking Louisville? Um, my high school coach, Dartez Tablet, was from Orangeburg, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my eyesight um, set up of attending uh, University of Georgia. And Louisville was one of the last schools that I visited. So um, having your high school coach as the guy from from the state of Kentucky, and he's tell, telling you to hold off as much as literally he would tell me every other week, don't sign, don't sign. And mm-hmm. I was really close to signing to University of Georgia um, because Athens was only like 45 minutes away. But I held out and um, I went to the university, and from that point I was hooked. I think it's a lot of a lot of things in terms of you know the people greeting me there to being in the, in the basketball environment, mm. um, kind of there was chemistry building between um, the players that were the current players at the university and I. So it's a lot of those things that really, really, uh, if you if looking back on it, all the pieces kind of fit. So I, I I chose the University of Louisville over over, over UGA. Sure. How did you like playing for Danny Crum? Danny was. Probably the, the calmest coach I ever <laughs> played for. You know, it took it took a lot for for the players for us to make it mad. Um, so it was more of a relaxed relaxed atmosphere. Um, very structured in terms of team development, not not individual development. Um, so I think we had the talent in most cases, but we didn't have the individual development to give us over the hump to play in some of the the top teams back in those days. Um, but overall, it was a great experience. Um, certainly, I learned a lot from Danny, just the way he carried himself as, as a coach and the way he ran his in his, um, his program. So things didn't start out great for you at Louisville. You were academically ineligible that freshman season. How did you handle that news, and how did you spend that season? That's a good question. You know, it was one of the things that I can actually say this to, let me just first say that, you know, a lot of the people in my hometown um, um, had problems with with even staying in school. Mm-hmm. And what, I'm, what I mean by that is they've been exposed, been exposed to um, a much richer environment in a sense. And, or growing up, we, we didn't go to a, a people in our community, didn't go to other places. Um, so to answer your question, one of the things that I did do was I made an effort to um, um, use school as priority. It wasn't that I was I wasn't a good student, it was mostly because of the test score. Uh-huh. So, so that's one of the things that I did. I I study extra harder so that that I wouldn't face any of those problems um, while at the University of Louisville. Um, so I kept myself busy. 
in and out of the student center center. And when times, whenever times when I could play or or pick up games of that sort, I did. But um, so I just occupied my time there. But it was very difficult because it was only it was three of us. It was not just me. So mm-hmm. and it was my first time being away, from, you know, being ever basketball being ever taken away from me, and right. I couldn't do anything about it. So um, yeah, that was nice when I was pretty upset. But for the most part, I try to stay busy. You know, hang, you know, hanging with people that. That wasn't. There were not basketball. You know, of didn't have anything to do with basketball and all those those kind of things. So I do it like the alternative way of doing it, I guess, if you want to say. How did, how much did that year sort of getting to watch and getting to see how things work before you got onto the court help you moving forward? Because I've talked quite a bit about being a Philadelphia 76ers fan on this show. And we've got a couple okay. of guys who basically spent their freshman years as injury red shirts and Joel and Ben. And it seems like that was a pretty big advantage to get a feel for how things work before you're thrown into it. Right. Well, I think when I look back on it, it wasn't more of me learning. It was it was more of me saying why because mm-hmm. I can't think of 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 one instance. Say, okay, this is what they're doing, or 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 this is what place that they're running. It was. I wasn't thinking from that perspective because I was so young, yeah. and, and 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 looking at it as like why why I'm sitting out why is this and feeling like being the victim like me 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 instead of saying okay what can I do to better myself as a um, as a player sure or how can I contribute why I'm not you know not not on the court so it wasn't like that I didn't have that train of thought back in, back then. All right, we're going to hold things right there for just a second, and we will be right back. Hey guys, Chris here, and I wanted to talk to you about SeatGeek. I have the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I have found it to be the easiest way to shop for tickets. I can be anywhere, and with just a few clicks, I can find the seats I'm looking for. I actually just used the app earlier this week. I wanted to go to watch the opening round of March Madness, but tickets were hard to come by, as you would imagine. But that wasn't the case on SeatGeek. There were plenty of tickets to choose from, and I found great seats and had an amazing time watching some fantastic basketball. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket-buying experience easier than ever. SeatGeek saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites and comparing prices to find you the best deal possible. And you get the most bang for your buck here. SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats to fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and use promo code TAILS today. That's promo code TAILS, T-A-L-E-S, for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek is my preferred way to buy tickets. Use it today and it'll become yours as well. And now, back to the show. Things went much better that sophomore season. You played almost 28 minutes a game and uh, scored 9.7 points a night while bringing in 5.1 rebounds a game. How much of a relief was it for you just to get out on the court and produce that year? <clears throat> um, it was okay. I, I, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it's it, 
they were going the school the team was 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 in the rebuilding phase. Yeah. We had five or six McDonald's All Americans on the team. So two of the guys left my second year, which I kinda took it as if you know, it was what if? Yeah. Because I think in a, in a way we all contribute you know differently to the team. Where we had a Kip who was a natural point guard and Tremaine was a was a force you know inside defensively. So coming in to that sophomore year, so I, it was it was a little bit of I had mixed feelings because of those two guys leaving and yeah. and we we were going through a rebuilding phase and um um. But we did contribute, and it was a successful season and from the year before. And so, and then I had my ups and downs about, you know, being at the university, or did I make the right decision? And, and our, you know, the games that we lost, you know, so it had all these little roller coasters in which you thought, to which I look back on, I'm thinking about it now, that kind of um, played it part, played it, it part, and, you know, and the things that, you know, during those yeah. years. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. So let me ask you, Greg. Yeah. Those first two seasons, was there a time where you seriously considered transferring? I really did. I really did because, you know, when you're 17, 18 years old, you go into university. You're not playing, and and and, and that's what I was facing. Yeah. My first year, and um, so I, yeah, that, that was times when I thought about it. You think Georgia, if it happened? Uh, sorry. Um, do you think Excuse it me? would be University of Georgia if you were to have transferred in this alternate reality? Well, I think so. I think so because they were really high high on my list, and um, to Vesta Anderson, I was really fond fond of him and Coach Storm and and with all the guys that were at the university. So it, that was close. That could have been a possibility, but that you know, again, that that thought process in which I was having. You know, having with the guys that um, was part of our program and being around, I couldn't leave those guys. So that's that's it was a, it, that that train of thought was like short lived for me. Sure. So, so yeah. ju- junior year, the team gets you know gets much better. You're 22 and nine, led by the trio of Dwayne Morton, a new kid by the name of Clifford Rogier, and yourself. That was Rogier's first year playing with you guys. How important an addition was he to that team? <clears throat> Having inside presence was was always important, and that's what Cliff brought it to us. He um, he's very heady in terms of how he played the position, and he wasn't very athletic, but he just knew how to you know work his body inside and get defenders off and get those extra rebounds if he needed them. So um, having him there, where we can be a dual threat from the inside out, it, it really uplift our program, and that's what we we needed when we. When those get, and I think that year too, Brian may have left Brian Hopgood. Mm-hmm. So, and he was another force that could have helped us too. But, uh, you know, that that junior year was certainly a lot having Cliff, Cliff around and uplifting our program. And, and, um, and we kind of jail with having the one week a part of it as well. And we get to your senior year, you guys are 28 and 6 and route to first place in the Metro. How'd you feel like that season went looking back at it? Well, we were really balanced. Um, Cliff had another um, stellar season. Dwayne and I, we were, you know, obviously trying to to show our best performance 
so that we can get have an even chance to plan at a higher level. Mm-hmm. And then we had Jason Osborne, who's a six eight six nine uh, freshman coming in and really contributed at that that power forward spot, um, who can really extend the defense. And DeJuan was um, spectacular in himself. So I was starting five. Actually, I was our eighth-man rotation was really strong that year. So it really helped. Um, you know, it was easy. Danny didn't have to really do too much. You just sit back and watch mm-hmm. for, the most, for the most part. Um, um, Which seems like his personality. During the, during the season. Well, it, there were times when Coach Crone got a little upset with us, you know, <laughs> whether we didn't take things serious. And <laughs> Right. But and, have you uh, ever played for any other coach where you can say – there were times where he got a little upset. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I imagine. Can you only, only, can, yeah, I only imagine, can count on like maybe four or five times. Or on, yeah. On my hands, four or five times, yeah. I imagine some of these gentlemen who you would play for later got more than a little upset at times. <laughs> right on. <laughs> so college career is over. What are you doing to prepare for the draft? I am um, – Working out twice um, twice a week with with Derek Smith, and he's telling me a lot of things about what to expect, you know, um, in terms mm-hmm. of the lifestyle in the NBA. To, to uh, uh, that's the alarm. I'm sorry. I think it's the building alarm. No problem. So um, that's basically what I'm doing um, um, at this point. Watch when I listen to the stories, watching tapes, mm-hmm. um, and just training to get my body ready for the pre-draft camps. People talk about the nightmare that is individual team workouts with some people working out for as many as 15 or 20 teams. What was that like for I, you? Well, some, some, some teams, they took me to these streams workout where you, you, you're doing some four court stuff um, to doing half court stuff just to mm. te- just to see what kind of condition you are in. And then there's other other teams that only took body measurement and only just ask you questions to see sure. who you are as a person. So it's a little bit of both um, depending on who they, and how they ran the organization. So we get to that 1994 NBA draft, and that's a class led by Glenn Big Dog Robinson and future Hall of Famers Jason Kidd and Grant Hill, a draft where my 76ers inexplicably picked Sharon Wright over the local boy and ideal fit Eddie Jones. Uh, first, you know, you hear your teammate's name as, as Cliff goes 16 to the Warriors, then at 25, the Los Angeles Clippers select you, only to turn around and trade you and Mark Jackson to the Pacers for Malik Seeley, Pooh Richardson, and Eric Piatkowski. How quickly did you know you were getting traded to Indiana? Um, probably within the next five minutes after my mm-hmm. name was selected. Um, Lynn and I were on the phone, and because Clippers, I, I did not take a trip out to to LA to visit or that compound. Mm-hmm. So, um, which was a shock to me because I'm like, where did it come from? All the, all the teams that I visit, the Clippers were the. I didn't even. No, right. we're, we're interested. Right. So I so I get I receive a phone call from Lynn and he goes, um, Greg, we're working on a deal with the Indiana Pacers, and I was just there the day of the draft. So it made made sense to me that um, that's basically the plan. And um, 
so um yeah it was it was a um so it was like a, a, one of my highs and lows because I had to interview um with one of the local team um, uh, papers um uh, right during draft night and I'm mm-hmm. so excited for going to l a and next thing you know I'm going to indiana so it it, it kind of it sort of worked out in the end. Yeah, but things do get a little weird from there. You know, the Pacers end up releasing you prior to the start of training camp. What what happened there, Greg? Well, I think I think in their minds they already were um, was um, pretty solid at those positions. That, you know, they had Reggie mm-hmm. Reggie Miller, they had Byron Scott, then they had maybe looking they had their final piece with Dwayne Farrell, and here I am, just a rookie, looking to make his way and where they were literally on the top of, of, of fighting with the top at, at the top spot with the um, New York Knicks. Yeah. So having someone who was uh, not experienced to bring him along in there, they, they didn't have, Indiana didn't have the time for that. They was, they wanted it at that particular time right now doing like, and, and like you said, it ends up working out because not only do you <clears> find another place to play, you are a Boston Celtic maybe the, I mean, them and the Lakers, those are the two teams that are, you know, your most famous, most successful teams in NBA history. And, you know, you didn't necessarily catch the Celtics during one of those strong periods, but, but you're still a Celtic. What's it like? The What's the feeling for you that first time you walk into the facility, now an NBA mm-hmm. player, now a teammate of guys like D Brown, Sherman Douglas, Xavier McDaniel, and Dominique Wilkins. Well, first, it was just like it was just a big relief just to be even um, to be a part of anything yeah. <laughs> at that particular time because I I really, I really didn't think there was any opportunities. But when I finally got um, were able to be on a team and to walk through those doors, it was like a sign. It was like a sense of release, a relief sure. that I belonged. And to meet those guys, um, those veteran guys, and to have that year under my belt it was, was my best year with, with Boston. Um, if I had to look, look, look back on it, I wish I would have played another three three more years with those, that first team because I learned so much oh, being sure. a rookie, playing with all those veteran players, playing with those veteran players. Yeah, that year you played in 63 games and you started eight. Not bad for a guy who you know got cut prior to training camp. You scored a, a respectable six points and you know two and a half rebounds a game, fifteen minutes a night. In fact, you even dropped thirty-one on the Warriors. How do you think that rookie season went? Um, certainly was a hard one because mm-hmm. now it's like this time I am training, doing whatever it took to get on the floor, and you just think you're good enough to do that, and yet you don't receive a, you know any playing time. So. It was had like the same effect on which it was, it was the same year I set out, set out, and we weren't winning a lot of games, yeah. but we did make the playoffs. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was like a rocky start for the most part, but definitely one of the things that I've you know I took from it is that I learned a ton. I got to receive a ton of information from playing with the those veteran guys. So let's talk about AC. AC, I asked AC Earl, who should I have on the show? And he said, go get in contact with my rookie, Greg Miner. What does being AC Earl's rookie entail? Jokes, jokes, and more jokes. <laughs> it, 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 regardless of what, what you're going through, and, and 
you know, your team, you know, in that, in those ways, what we were going through, not winning games, but yeah. um, certainly had its highs and lows in the season. And, and when you're having your lows, it's great to have someone like AC around because he keep he kept the locker room like cracking jokes and and sharing, you know, information whether it's day to day task or whatever. He was one of those guys that kept the, the locker room light and and very um, talkative to not just only me but to all the players. Yeah, I remember when he was on the show, he would tell stories about basically almost not paying attention in moments to the, what was going on in the game later in his career, just because he was <laughs> having such a good time talking to you know people like yourself or people like you know John Sally is is this the dream guest for this show and just that seems like that's who ac is yes he's he's definitely you know is a communicator and you know a high energy one you know yes there's yeah there's only like several guys that i can say that that when you that just grabs grabs your attention right away when when they're having a conversation with you or if they're across the room having a conversation with someone else that's ac and bill walton those two guys are, are yes <laughs> they're two of a kind <laughs> big men with big personalities <laughs> exactly uh so let's talk about your coach that year is chris ford he would go on to be fired but how did how did you like playing for ford that first year Doc was, you know, Doc was very serious. You know, it was one of those things, one of those coaches where I was walk, I literally walked on my tippy toes. Okay. Uh, whenever he's around, because he never gave you anything, and he's I had this stoic look on his face, right? So, I remember, you know, my, during my rookie year, and I'm going to share the story before we even go there. I don't know if it'd be one of your questions or not, but I can remember walking into um, the locker room like in this, and I'm the last one there. And he pulls me to the side. He goes, "Don't you blink, blink, blink this again, you, you rookie, or I'm gonna do this to your check." And I'm like, "Holy <laughs> crap!" <laughs> okay, well, I, I have follow up questions for that. What, <laughs> what, what were you? What was he talking about? I mean, we got a lot of blanks well, there, but what, what was what he talking about? Okay, okay. So, so what happened? Because I jumped, I jumped, maybe. Um, Two, two or three steps ahead. Yeah. So I was, I was re- um, coming to practice like right, like 15 minutes before. And this is something I used to do at University of Louisville. Well, I'm in the NBA now, mm-hmm. and if you're a rookie or any player, at least an hour before practice, right? Sure. So here I am coming 15 minutes um, before practice, and he just grabs me, grabbed me to the side as if I knew what was going on, which I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> And at that particular time, I said, okay, um, yeah, not an hour before practice. So that was the last of uh, of me showing up 15 minutes before practice. Right. I imagine <laughs> it was uh, probably like an hour 15 that next day. <laughs> exactly. What is, what is that like? That's interesting because on one hand, you know, it's a situation where you're sort of, you're sort of being talked down to. But on another hand, you know, on the other hand, this is this is the person who is literally in charge of your NBA mm-hmm. career at this point. How do you how do you balance that? Is it is it angry? Is it is it upset? Is it mad? What's the feeling? Well, well, for me, it's embarrassment in the beginning sure. because you know I think I think you know as a coach, and you know, it's his duty to understand each player. 
Mm. And I think he wanted to get my attention, and he kind of sort of read me the right way by approaching me very firm. Um, so um, I wasn't necessarily um, emotional about it. I was just embarrassed because sure. here I am, a hard worker, and, you know, went in one ear, went out the other, and I did what I had to do from that point on. So after that year, the Boston front office, led by ML Carr, decides to fire Ford and name, well, ML Carr as the team's new head coach. What's the feeling around the team when Ford was let go and replaced by ML? I learned to discuss with any other players, um, so I, I don't know what they were thinking at partic- that particular time. For me, it was mostly trying to figure out, like, okay, um, how can I get on the floor? Um, how can I contribute? How can I get a better contract and all these things? So I look into my second year, having when we let Crisco and ML um, entered and took down, took the position as an opportunity to to um, contribute. To and that the second, team. yeah, and you did that second year. You played in seventy eight games. You started forty seven, averaged nine six and three three. The Celtics team was not good, you know, 33 and 49, but for you, it was a, a personal step up. And statistically, how were you guys feeling? Well, how were you feeling after that first ML car season? Um, upset mm. because, you know, I think we, we didn't, we, we regressed in, yeah. in, in terms of what we, we were doing before and uh, the year before and uh, I didn't think the team was, was heading in the right direction um, based on like guys you can tell from their body language that they were checked out they were doing their own thing yeah um, and there were different different uh, agendas in the locker room so it was a very long tough season that year and um, but I knew something was was up and some that the team had to make them make a make a change Sure. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Chris here, and we're going to talk about a real problem for men, hair loss. Hair loss is a major problem for guys, with 66% of men starting to lose their hair by their 35th birthday. And once you start noticing it, you're already fighting an uphill battle. Because of that, a lot of guys have started using hair loss products as preventative measures, long before they start seeing any real hair loss. Once they start losing it, guys will turn to all kinds of crazy products to fight the battle. But why do that when science and medicine have the answer you're looking for? I'd like to introduce you to a solution to the problem, 4hims.com. A miracle company for men that can be a man's one-stop shop for hair loss, sexual wellness, and skin care. Thanks to science, losing your hair is now optional. This isn't one of those sketchy Mexican pharmacies online or anything like that. Hims connects you to real doctors with medical-grade solutions to help you deal with your hair loss. There's no snake oil here. With Hims, you'll have access to high-quality generic equivalents to name-brand drugs that will help you keep your hair. And the best thing is just how simple the process is. There's no calling to make an appointment, driving down, and waiting around at a doctor's office all day. For Hims lets you save not only your hair, but also your time. All you have to do is answer a few quick questions for a doctor to review, and the products will be shipped right to your door. I'm going to tell you a story about a friend of mine named JR. JR found himself losing his hair, and with that, his sense of self and his confidence. He was a shell of the man that he was before, but once he found a solution, things started to turn around. Turn your life around. 
Visit 4 today. Our listeners get a trial month of hymns for only $5 today, right now, while supplies last. See the website for full details. This would cost hundreds of dollars if you went to the doctor or to a pharmacy. Go to 4 slash tales. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash tales. 4 slash tales. And now, back to the show. And 96 was also the slam dunk contest year. How was competing in All-Star Weekend? It was good. It was good. I can remember being very crowded, hanging out with friends, uh, mm. going on little walks here and there. Um, but I didn't attend to attend a lot of parties. We just sort of like just chatted around, just kind of absorbed the whole atmosphere. And it actually, it was one of the few All-Stars out there. I think there was one other in Houston at a particular time. But it was good. It was a really good time. How did you feel like you did in the dunk contest? Oh, looking back on, I didn't do so great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, no emotion. You know, you, I think at a particular time during the dunk contest, I thought I did a lot better. But, you know, those guys, Barry and Finley, they, um, mm. Armstrong, they, you know, I think they did a pretty good job of, of um, working the crowd and, looking more composed and relaxed than I was. How much planning how much planning went into that, that dunk contest routine? Um if I had to put it on the scale of one to ten, I would mm. say around a four. Okay. Because I got I got so like chalked up like what I'm gonna do. I mean you can't possibly think of anything and that every dunk has that you can think of has been created, right? Yeah. And now you look. Now I'm at this age, and I look back. Like, apparently not, because <laughs> <laughs> these guys are, are um, um, some of the dunks I've seen in the past over the years are after since '96 were, were fairly good. Um, so yeah, I, I think for the most part it was it was okay for the most right. part. All right. Well, that next year, the '96-'97 season was forgettable to say the least. Uh, the Celtics finished 15 and 67. You played in just 23 games that year. How difficult was that for you? It was very difficult because, you know, I had, you know, high hopes of coming back from, you know, having injuries and, mm. and, uh, um, it was my contract, <clears throat> my contract here, I think. No, I, I had just signed again with the team and, you know, it was supposed to be my breakout year, and it was right. anything of of a sort. So, um, and um, I really struggled, struggled like on on the floor mostly, on and off the floor. So it was one of those deals. I don't want to dwell too much on this, but you did you did touch on it a little bit ago, and I think it's interesting when a team's going through a season like that. How much of an effect does the constant losing have on the players, and in what forms? It has a tremendous, a tremendous effect because when the coach is saying, "Okay, he has the game plan, or this is what we need to do," the first thing goes is the voice of the coach. Yeah, and so you start looking at the coach like, "Okay, it's, it's not, whatever you're saying is not really clicking," or you know, we're we're um, still trying to figure out, like, how we're going to win. And if he didn't have an idea of playing, then we're thinking, like, okay, um, what's the next deal? And that's what, that's where you start looking at, you know, each other or, or 
the player. So not to say that we were like that towards each other because we still believe that in, in so many ways that we could win. But certainly you had those fellas going in, um, maybe um, a game here or the game there, and then yeah. the season over, and then you're thinking the same thing. Okay, what what did we do wrong? How can we get better uh, as a team? Especially nearer to the end of the season, have guys checked out at that point? Yes. I think when you go on like a, one of those losing streets early on in the year where um, early the first month and let's say that you're like two and, I don't know, eight or something yeah. on those lines and you go on, and you continue to lose, you're like, okay, what's what's the deal? How can we get better? And, and, and yeah, you start looking around and um, – um, and and you you're thinking like maybe you know the season even come longer you can change it, yeah. and I think in some of the cases during that that particular year we were definitely uh, had checked out a little bit early. So you well, talk... trying to fight, but we definitely checked out. Right. Well, it, it that that happens. You talk about the first thing going is you know the voice of the coach. In ninety seven ninety eight, the Celtics brought in quite a loud voice in Rick Pitino. The team improves by 21 wins, but you guys still finish sixth in the in the Atlantic Division, and the year is kind of a struggle for you as uh, maybe Coach Patino didn't view you in the same way some of the previous coaches did. You start fewer games, and it seems like you never really find your rhythm. What was that first year under Patino like? It it was um it was very it was very difficult because you know. Um, I guess I got my years mixed up there before, and this is the year when I came off the injury. I had I was in the um, had kind of reactivated my reactivated my foot. Yeah. And basically, when the new coach comes in, a lot of times you have to prove yourself all over again. Right. And I felt as if there was a there was a raw deal in, in that in that regards because it doesn't matter how hard I did or how much I trained it was already a done deal as if he was going to play his guy at that particular time. And it was Ron Mercer who played from at the university of Kentucky. So, in which I understood that. Um, So that's basically where it came down to. And, and there was certain like moves that the Celtics made at the, we made at that particular year. Um, Well, I think we went out and signed like guys like Bruce Bowen. um, Yeah. Who was another two. And then we also had Dante Jones. Um, who also played in position. So it was clearly there was a message on the wall that he wanted to revamp the whole team, and that was basically nothing I can do to 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 change his opinion about that. Right. What What's your relationship like with Patino now, if you even have any? No, it was. I think as when when I was still like back when from my years in Boston, mm-hmm. it, we, we didn't really. We, we we clash a lot of times in in terms of my beliefs. I certainly had my way of thinking that um, you know that there was an opportunity and 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 I could have handled things a little bit different. And he, you know, had a fiery coach and wanted to have his way. So um, we 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 definitely had you know clashed a little bit, and it could have but went a little bit a little bit smoother about it. Better. Well, you certainly aren't the first person to not get along <laughs> with Rick Pitino. I think you're in pretty good company there, actually. 
Right. Uh, I'm Maybe. sorry that this is so this is so morbid. The tone of this show is usually far more upbeat, Greg. Um, <laughs> so, and we're not going to get any better right now. I think you know what's coming next. That takes yeah. us to that eighty, that ninety-eight, ninety-nine season, and we get to April 29th. You suffer what turns out to be a career-ending injury in a game against the Heat. Can you take us through what happened? Sure. Um, Miami was a. We were. I think we were, I can't remember, it was the second quarter. I was in the second quarter, but mm-hmm. um, the shot we were on, the, we were defending the heat, and the shot was taken. And if you're looking, if you're half court, I'm on the left side. And um, we grasped the rebound, and I'm getting ready to break out. And I sit, and I'm running down. Dan Marley is right in front of me. Mm-hmm. And he, he just sort of just, jumped in my path so I had to go around him and when I went tried to go around I planted wrong yeah. and I felt like a little pop in my in my right leg uh, around my hip area and I just landed really really hard on the floor um, and at that particular time I knew exactly what had you know something was wrong something yeah. was wrong because of the way it felt so um there was a week left to go in the season, and that was our last road game uh, in which the injury went into place. So um, we were in transition from offense to de- I mean, from defense to offense, and uh, Dan Murray jumped in my path, and uh, that's where the injury, that's uh, when everything took place. It seems like, like that. Turn. It seems like that moment is just seared into your brain. <laughs> yeah, it's the what if. It's the what if, you know. Um, because I always, I think when I look back on my career, um, certainly it was like me, there were times when I was fighting as injuries and other times, as, you know, I, have to, I always had to prove this and prove that. And, um, it's always up here battle, battle in terms yeah. of that. But for the, but, but for the most part, you know, I wouldn't tra- trade it for anything in the world. Yeah. It's still a heck of a lot better than 99.9% something percent of people on this planet get to do. Um, What are the doctors telling you after that injury? What's the initial prognosis? Well, I, I really didn't, I think looking back on it, I can't remember like all the details Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. what was said, uh, but it was like in complete denial. Right. Yeah. And, um, But I want to. But before I got to that point, I I, I want to say I read it in the paper oh. uh, that my career was over and and, and, and no one from the yeah and no one the team the officials told me like exactly what happened. So it was like a, like what the heck because I was thinking like there was an opportunity to come back and play like the following year or maybe the year before I mean year after yeah. maybe two years later. But but no no I want to yeah like. Mine. That's a Career rough day. That is a rough yeah, day. Yeah, very rough. Reading day. the paper, <laughs> I don't know if you're in the hospital still at this point, or you're you're at home recovering. And oh, by the way, we're reporting that Greg Miner's career is over. Yeah. Oh yep. my god. Um. Well, I'm sorry that happened to you. That stinks. So, 2001, you're reportedly close to signing with the Sydney Kings in Australia, but it never materialized. What happened there? Pardon. Allegedly, Wikipedia suggests 
that in 2001 you were close to playing in Australia? Um, no. <laughs> oh, yeah? Just no, not that, true? That, that, that's not true. <laughs> okay. No. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> well, this is not the first time the Internet's been wrong. <laughs> I'm like, well, that, that, that definitely caught me off guard. <laughs> Uh, somebody's got to edit your Wikipedia page, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah right. we have to go back in there. Let's see. <laughs> let's see what of this is what we have left is correct. Let's talk about your your post playing okay. career. You go to coach, um, okay, and some some interesting stops. Uh, as the internet reports that your first stop is in Lawton, with the Lawton Fort Still Cavalry in the CBA, where. You're working under Otis Birdsong and coaching under Michael Ray Richardson. Those are some those are some fascinating names right there. How did that come about? Okay, so in 2007, I was overseas working with Basketball Without Borders, mm-hmm. and I met Otis, and we we changed numbers. And um, at that particular time, he was he was coaching. He was general manager of um, of, of Lawton, um, and he had just left a team from Arkansas. Um, minor league team, minor league basketball team. Yeah. So uh, we changed numbers, and um, I got I got on this unexpected phone call like halfway through the year. Um, their assistant coach left their team to go coach um, to an, with another team in their league. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they needed someone uh, quickly, so I ended up going there, and um, and, and we we. And complete, we had a pretty good successful season. Um, they were already in you know, everything in place, and um, yeah, it was, was a good coaching year. was coaching something you thought about prior to that, or did it just sort of come about? Well, I was looking, in, I was looking and get involved in it. Um, I was going around um, around the state of Florida, just popping in at different um, universities, getting down, jotting down ideas, and mm. watching the coaches do do their thing and how they communicate with the players. And, uh, watching videos of of um, uh, coaching clinics and things of that nature. Um, so, um, and I, and also I went, you know, I was I think a volunteer coach with late merit prep. So that was like all these different ideas and starting to like build and build up and and I definitely took an interest in and and start doing all the research and things that I needed to do to to improve and make and establish connections. Sure. And from there, you go to the Thunders D-League team where you're in their, their basketball operations and serve as an assistant coach with the Tulsa 66ers. How was that experience? Okay. Um, first, I want to – I, I have to give this long drawn out. So when that year go we played it. against um, – the year, the year when I was with in Lawton, Lawton yeah. Oklahoma, with the Otis, we won the championship. And the team that we played against was the Yakima Sun Kings – and they had coach Paul Wolpert. Well, Michael Michael Ray Richardson got ejected during one of the games, and I was okay. forced. I was out, not forced, but I was in next in line to coach the team. And uh, I coached against Paul, and we ended up winning that game. So he remembered me, and um, when Seattle was bought out um, and moved to Oklahoma, Paul was there. Where's the guys that they reached out to to to, to coach their minor league team? So. Connect the dots. Paul remember me uh, when I was interested in in um, submitting my resume and uh, 
they flew me in for an interview and conduct some floor exercises. And the next thing you know, I'm with the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder. Okay. 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 And um, so, which brings us to this question. Um, you asked me, I think, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, um, what my experience was like with the yeah. Thunder. It was um, it was a really um, it's probably one of my best years of in terms of being an assistant coach because I learned a lot from their organization the way that they do things um, behind the scenes in terms of collecting information about players and um, the way they kind of go about the day to day operation. It, I look back at that experience with the with the Thunder as if it one would probably be probably is my best experience um, working and watching Sam Presti and not working with them, but watching them from afar and, and watching Charles Weaver do their, their things and um, yeah. the way they communicate and they're truly, you really truly feel like you're in a, like you're in a team environment. So it was really, it was a really good experience. You know, I think uh, I hate to jump around here, but I, I think I'm leaving some meat on the bone with that CBA coaching experience, uh, specifically Michael Ray Richardson, because this is a guy who, I mean, I, I don't need to explain to anybody that he has also had a an interesting career, both in the NBA and then afterwards. How was Michael Ray doing when, when you were around him? Well, it, it, certainly we, we definitely we, we have different coaching styles. Mm -hmm. He's like a rah-rah in, in your face type of coach where I am – Mostly calm, to have more of the Danny Crum approach. So he, for the most part, it, it, we all set one another. Um, he was doing pretty well. I think he may have won a championship while coaching in, in, in a different team, but mm. was uh, McElroy and Otis are uh, friends, and certainly at that particular time with his his tight record and hit the, the amount of um, games that he had won. Uh, it was a no-brainer for Otis to bring him there. So uh, working for him was was okay and from 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 a floor being on the floor coaching and all this. But from an administrative standpoint, it could have been a little bit better. Yeah. Um, I think. But uh, I've learned a lot from when I from when him. I when I talk about how was Michael Ray doing, I mean Michael Ray had some demons. How was he doing? Oh, from a more personal standpoint. Oh, you mean you, personal standpoint? It, I would say he was excellent because at Good. that particular time, I didn't see any evidence of him doing any or hearing anything about you know him his involvement of of any of that sort of stuff. Well, that's great. That's he's one of those should have beens when we talk about NBA players, and it, it's sad that we didn't get to see more. But you know, things happen. Um, Okay, so the next two years, you take assistant coaching roles with the Bakersfield Jam and the Idaho Stampede of the D-League. Is it tough to find sort of a permanent place on a professional coaching staff? I don't think so. I think a lot has to do with probably just my experience. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't really have anyone to, to represent me. A lot of these guys have um, agents. Gotcha. Or they probably been a little bit more on top of it in terms of networking. For me, it was just like me and diving in, in into the moment and trusting that everything is going to work out and 
you know, obviously with Paul Woodward and, and the dominant, that didn't work out because if they wanted certain things a certain way and Paul didn't really, didn't follow, well, we didn't really follow the protocol. So when, and then when a lot of times when these things happen, um, if the head coaches leave, then you, everyone else falls suit. Sure. And then basically what happened there, um, in case of like, uh, uh Bakersfield and, and, and Portland, they didn't have different experiences. Um, with Bakersfield, it was more of like, a, uh, just some, for other reasons, personal reasons. Okay. And and with with Portland, it was more of me seeking an opportunity to, to go overseas for the first time. So, you know, certain to leave Randy and Joel um, in that situation up there. They actually had a pretty good they pretty good chemistry, and I sometimes wonder why I, why I was there. Sure. But um, when China when that that deal came around and there was opportunities to coach over there, I just took it because I, at that particular time I was looking to 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 become a head coach or get some head coaching experience. Yeah, I think of any question that I had for you today, this is the one I've been looking forward to the most because this is fascinating. In 2011, <clears throat> you find your first head coaching job. I'm going to take a shot at this. With the Jiangsu Yangshi Professional Basketball Club in the National Basketball League of China. First of all, how bad yeah, did I butcher that name? You did. It's okay. You were close. Okay. <laughs> Not all right. bad, but you're uh, <laughs> so, how did this happen, and how big a language barrier was there? Okay, so in 2007 was my first year in in um, China, in the working with basketball out borders. Yeah. I went back two years later, I think before uh, a trip to Bakersfield, and I was there for uh, maybe a month. Um, four to six weeks. So I met a guy there that knew, knows the general manager of the team that reached out to me. So when they form a, their professional basketball team, um, David David Liu um, contacted me through through email asking if I'll be interested, and that's how everything started. Um, his connection with the general manager, my connection with David during basketball without borders, and David, one of David's friends, that is the general manager of the Chinese basketball team. Okay. And the language barrier. And the language, uh, is, you know, I, I'm not, <laughs> I don't speak fluent Chinese, but I can right. understand a little bit here and there, and uh, I can get around to certain things, but that was a huge language barrier. How do you coach um, a team full of people who don't understand what you're saying? <laughs> okay, so it's a good question. So here's what was what, what was done with our team. Um, I went. I had proposed a couple questions. One was, <laughs> um, you can go by your family name, or you can go. By, or the other question was, you can go by um, your favorite player. And okay. so half of the players chose their favorite <laughs> their their favorite player, and then <laughs> and then the other half chose their family name. Okay. And certainly the one with the you know some of the players with the uh, uh, the let's say the egocentric ones are were um, with their own family name, and the one who has you know less confident obviously were. Um, were um, using like names such as Harden, Harden, um, James, and 
Kobe. Those are the names I can remember. How was how Rose. was the player that you called Kobe? And do you remember what his actual name was? Do you remember what his actual name was? No, 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 no. I don't. I don't remember his name. But he. No, it's it's funny. That's a good question. You're on it. Um, he's a slender guy, probably about six five, Uh six six. Uh When I say slender, he's he's uh, maybe a hundred and. 75 pounds easy. Okay. Um, very wild. <laughs> um, very, probably one of the youngest guy on the team. He was the youngest guy, youngest guy on the team. Um, always smiling. And all the girls liked him. That's okay. what I remember about okay. that, that that particular player. Oh, that's tremendous. How does, all right, so I, I've coached my share of basketball in uh, in my time. Granted, not anywhere near the level that you have, but I couldn't imagine running a practice. Are, were you, are you going through a translator? How is it working? Okay. So that's, yeah, I didn't mention Rory, Roy at all. So normally the way it works, we I, I go over a practice plan with him before we take the floor so they gotcha. understand the drill, and then we can go forward from there. Um, so there, there's a translator there to um, – whatever message that I to communicate mm-hmm. with the player or whatever message that I have with the owner, because even with the owner doesn't speak uh, English either. Yeah. So that was, which that was very difficult. Um, you know, having a foreign coach there who can't communicate with the player or can't commun- communicate with the people in the front office. Right. Um, and I totally had to rely on him, um, which was um, at some time became extremely difficult. Could you, because you know, the relationship between player and coach is an incredibly important one. Could you really form right. any sort of meaningful relationship with these guys? Um, I think so. I think I relies heavily on body language. Yeah. And watch, you know, even though he's in, in translating whatever message that I'm um, trying to relay or they're trying to relate to me, I'm really highly on that. And I think a lot of it has to do with. You know, things of when we have like player coach meeting, if they wanted to go, let's say, back to the university for some reason or they need to visit a family member. Yeah. Um, and I, re- I rely heavily on Roy to make sure, like, reading their body language and understanding what he's saying. And now ask him in English, what do he think? So get his input as well. And that would really help me understand them. And once they were, I was able to trust him more. I think that was I was they were on the we were able to, the player yeah. and the players and I was on the were starting to be on the same page and understand me and trust me. So sure, I think I, can't even that, imagine I think that. the relationship, I think the relationship, yeah, the relationship built from that standpoint. Uh, you know, I and I try to be fair with 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 each one. So the star player yeah. doesn't necessarily get a lot of um, different. They didn't get treated any different than the than the 12th player on the team. Yeah. <laughs> and then Kobe. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I cannot even imagine how difficult that must have been. Well, it makes you, it, it, you, you definitely become creative in terms of delivering your message. That's sure. for sure. And, and the other thing is, um, 
um, you, you definitely become creative, creative as a coach because, you know, you just can't just say certain things. You have to really think about what you want to say um, and to relate to you. You have to be pro- a lot more proactive, I should say, yeah. than coaching here in America. Oh, Greg, I just – I can't get my head around this. I in-game ad- how how do you make in-game adjustments? I, I I spent so much of a game. Well, I mean, I I moved out to California now, but back when I was in Pennsylvania, so much of the game yelling at the at the kids to do different things, and you don't have that ability. You can't you can't correct on the fly by yourself. Right. Um. That was that, that was very that was very frustrating. There were very there was a lot of frustrating moments. Did you consider so, Did you consider taking Chinese lessons, Chinese classes? I did. Actually, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did. which means yes. Um, <laughs> well done. Um, <laughs> so, so like, what? what I, like the, the very first thing. So you asked about the game situation. Yeah. <laughs> I had to get some some games under my belt to understand like when I should say certain things or when not, mm-hmm. when I should call certain times on timeout or when not, um, and what key things I wanted to done. And 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 here's what becomes kind of tricky because even though I'm there, uh, I'm the head coach. I have a, an assistant coach who's Chinese, so I can't really necessarily communicate with him. But what I did do uh, was give give my translators the information and to relate to my assistant that if he ever see anything that he knows in terms of what we're doing, feel free to let the players know. Yeah. And okay. and I was just trusting that the message was, was delivered. So I, occasionally I would see him, you know, um, say certain things to the players about their mistakes or the things that we may be doing. But in terms of the game strategies or, or management and things of that nature, I had to totally rely on what we've been practicing on up up to that particular time. Because if you know, I, you know, you only do so many repetitions, and hopefully that it sinks in. And, and I think they were, uh, for the most part, getting it. Uh, but then you go there, go through stretches during games where, you know, um, everything's fall apart. <laughs> Okay, so 2012, you're back in Cleveland with their G League team, but we're going to gloss over that because I want to get back to China, back with the, um, this this current team, whose name I, I won't say wrong for a second time. At this point, do you have – because this – you bring up an interesting point with the, the assistant coaches as well and the communication barrier there. At, do you have the ability to bring in your own coaches at any point? Because it seems like that would be incredibly helpful for you. Okay. So it's Jansu Ishiyanshi. Okay. Ishiyanshi. Okay. Jansu Ishiyanshi. Yeah. So I was here's what I was told when when I got there. Um, they said, "Oh, we want to make sure that you know you're comfortable and and we want to in these things and um, uh, we if you want we would like to have another American coach as your assistant." And and I said okay, so I started looking for guys that I knew that I felt comfortable with, and mm. and I, I proposed the idea of okay, this is what I'm doing, and and then, and and like a month went by, and I didn't hear anything, and then another month, and then I didn't hear anything. Finally, I went up to my uh, my translator, I'm like what was the story, and they said oh, they changed their mind, they wanted to stay with um, oh, 
they, they wanted their own assistant, Chinese assistant. So I went through like, I went, there was a period where I was going through like three or four assistants that were not really good. I felt as if they were more there spying and watching the program than opposed to understanding the message, what I, what I was doing. So yours is a tale of global, global espionage. <laughs> This is, <laughs> exactly. this is an, an interesting <laughs> coaching experience. Uh, even yeah. having something as simple as coaches who could speak both Chinese and English, which it seems like would not be that hard to find, seem, would have been incredibly helpful, I would think. Well, it, it, yeah, but the thing was, was, was Mandarin, learning Chinese, is it's far different pitch. So you can say one, you can say a word, and you got to be really careful. You don't pitch it right. It can mean something completely different. Gotcha. I will admit my um, so I think I think yeah I think is you know I think it'll be really I got command coaches that can speak both so when they bring in a foreign player they can speak English but you know be, being able to communicate with their Chinese players too I, I really do but it, it, I think it's one of those things where if you from the West and you go in there then obviously it's going to take you years to learn it to learn it this is the fact of it. So how how did this come to an end? You were there until 2016. Why leave? Um, then my daughter's getting a little older. Mm. She's starting high school, and and I was in there for two years. Um, now I come home every like six months or so. So a little bit some of that to the way the team was ran, um, and you know, obviously missing 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 America too. So. Course. A lot of those things that, that, that this, I think that's what played a part of it. And ultimately, and you got you know, being in a city where you literally you trained from Monday to Saturday, you you going twice a day, yeah. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, all the way up to Saturday morning, um, with no vacation. The only vacation you get is like in February during Chinese New Year. So it it was it was pretty tough. Or when I came home to America, I'm sorry, right. it was pretty tough for the most part. And what's going on and with so, Greg Miner today? Oh, I, 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 um, I'm having a friend out here in Burbank, California, with his with his program, and I'm looking at you know hopefully other opportunities. Uh, uh, you want to continue coaching? I don't know. That's the thing. Like I think I'm like in a transition phase. Okay. But um, um. Certainly, you know, it's, it's fun. I really enjoy, like, what, you know, the, sometimes the perks that come with it, the things that you see. And But at this particular time, I'm really excited with, with the kids that we have and, you know, working with them and seeing them grow as uh, as players, as people and players. All right, well, we're right at this hour, Mark, so I want to wrap this up like we do with everyone at the end of every show. Quick game of word association. I'm going to give you a player's name someone you played with, someone you came across, and just give me the first thing that comes to your mind. It does not have to be one word. It can be however long you like, just the first thing that pops into your mind. And let's start with Clifford Rogier. Funny. D. Brown. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, seriously. They both, they both are funny. They're two Florida guys, too. <laughs> How about Sherman Douglas? He's another funny one. <laughs> High energy, funny, um, loyal guy. Well, I I'm, almost don't even want to ask you about AC Earl. No, 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 no funny. 
Um, dear friend, a day zero, dear friend, um, never a dull moment with Ace. A, and an acclaimed author. How about Purvis Ellison? Okay. Um, cool. Uh, very, very gentlemanlike. Rick Fox. Uh, classy. He was uh, ladies love Rick. <laughs> <laughs> How about the X-Man, Xavier McDaniel? Tough. Um, was my, I was his uh, rook, so definitely looked up to him. What is Xavier like off the court? X was 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 very direct to the point. Okay. He spoke his mind. He, he he spoke his mind, and he didn't held held his tongue for anything. He was a uh, uh, which I respect him most for because whatever situation could come up, he would let, definitely let you know if he liked it or he didn't like it. He's definitely know, very opinionated. Good to know where you stand with people. How about David Wesley? Very quiet. He was quiet in a sense, you know. Um, quiet, but oh, he times he probably jokes. Happy, happy-go-lucky spirit guy. Dominique Wilkins. Cool as. Uh, he was like that uncle in the room in a sense. And you look mm-hmm. around, he makes sure that you, he lets you do your thing, but at the same time, he pulled rail you in when it, when, when, it, when you need it. You need to hear a word, or a word of encouragement or something of that nature. Dana Barrows. Closest friend uh, with the Celtics. Whenever we often we were on the road, uh, we, we will often be together and hang out. I have a special place in my heart for Dana from his Philadelphia days. Okay. How about Dino Raja? Hmm. Yeah, AC also had that similar (laughs) response to Dino Raja. (laughs) You know, there's certain things I don't think I want to say. I don't know, but um, Dino was uh, he was like that that odd guy. Yeah. And on the team, he that's all I can say. He was the odd guy. Yeah, you know, you I, have like a corner where everybody get along, they talk, they have things that they can share. But Dino would be that one guy that over there to himself is kind of watching, you know. <laughs> you don't know what's going to, you know, you don't know like what's going to happen. Um, he dressed kind of weird, that kind of deal. He's that guy. <laughs> yeah, I think AC said rough around the edges. Okay, there we go. <laughs> uh, how about Antoine Walker? Twan, what can I say about Twan? I think so with he, the way you see Twan, I think for the most part, the way you look at Twan um, from afar is what you get behind okay. the scenes. Exactly. So he's he's a realist. He's yeah. he's a realist. He's 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 a guy that you know kind of sort of like remind you of Xavier, right? Mm-hmm. You're gonna speak his mind. So he is the player that we see, we think he is from watching him. He is the right. person we think he is from watching him. Uh, how about how about Kenny Anderson? Uh, Kenny, Kenny is a uh, quiet, 
people will open up to you once you get what well, he's quiet, but he will open up to you. I mean, amongst the team, mm-hmm. he, but if he trusts you, um, but he would do anything for you if he knows, you know, if you're his guy. And uh, I like to think that Kenny and I were, we were in um, a very good place when we were teammates. I'm surprised to hear Kenny's a, he's a Queens kid. I'm surprised to hear quiet. I would have thought something on the other side of that spectrum. Well, yeah, but no, I, I, my, my memories of Kenny, like he always came in, uh, rather than say too much to many people, just came in to did his business. He tend to talk more and it could be, he has some issues that I don't know about when he was yeah. with us. Right. Yeah. But he, he tend to go about his business in that way. Like he came in, didn't say anything, but once you got to, to hang, once you start hanging around him and got to know him as a person, he definitely opened up. You were there around a very young Chauncey Billups back when, back when the the world thought Chauncey Billups was a gigantic draft bust. What was mm-hmm. Chauncey like? On this, uh, unsure of himself, and I'm, yeah. you, you, there will be days when he, when he would come in and um, he have a really good practice, and you can see that that he had that that it quality. And then there would be days when he was so so unsure of himself. And you can see it too on his face. But um, so I think overall, it was like a rocky start for him as yeah. a player. And I, I think it was a couple of times when I say when I after my career was over with the Celtics, I ended up living in, in Orlando. And he was before he went to Detroit, he was with the Magic, and mm-hmm. um, um, he seemed much more. Ha- he was happier and in a very good place. Even with the magic, and he wasn't even playing that much at that, at that yeah. time. Well, he certainly figured things out. So when you were playing, it was kind of in the middle of that international craze that the NBA went through for a while. And mm-hmm. one of the players who I think history would suggest was massively overdrafted because of the love of international players, thanks to guys like Dirk, was our next player, Vitaly Potapenko. <laughs> V. V is. Uh, what, what do you think of of Vitaly when you, when you see him? And I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question. I just want to ask you what do you what do you think of Vitaly? If you if you saw him from afar, what if if we had to give him? If I so I'm if, you, if I'm yeah. I'm on I'm on a sidewalk. He's walking the other way. What's my initial thought? Yes. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, we're talking about a big seven foot giant. <laughs> And right. uh, and a foreign giant at that, I, you know I'm right. gonna I'm gonna guess that he is actually in real life. I'm guessing he's quiet and kind of thoughtful. He is actually he is. He's very he's quiet and, and he and believe it or not, we used to hang a guy. We used to hang, we we hang, we hung out like some several times. He's like that guy that um to kind of observe things. He's not going to go overboard. He's not going to get overly emotional. He's going to be even the yeah. entire time. Um, but you know that's like a gentle heart there. But yeah. if things get out of control, okay. <laughs> he's that kind of guy that would like hold like people together or you start a brawl. That's what he kind of is. That's what I get from, <laughs> from Right. Me. When stuff goes down, all of a sudden you remember he's from Kiev. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's funny. 
Okay, I didn't want to end on Vitaly, so the last guy we're going to finish up, Popeye Jones. Pop is a guy that will. I can't say he never stopped talking. Yeah. He, he, he never. I mean, he's 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 he's. I, I mean, he can be a really good talk talk show host. I mean, I think he has that that ability. <laughs> so when I when I played, I didn't I didn't talk a lot. Uh-huh. It was like me handling the business, you know, just coming there back and forth in this plan. But Popeye, the minute he walks in the room, he just ch- chatting with everybody, a little bit about everything. Um, a lot of energy on the floor. Um, certainly he um, knew his role, and he played his role well with the team. And everybody liked him, you know, from the coaching staff to the players. Uh, there were definitely some things that you, you as players, we didn't sit around Pop because he was still a talker. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so I mentioned uh, I mentioned Sally earlier, but I think I think guys like Popeye I think Popeye Jones is in probably my top five wish list for guys I, I want to have on the show at some point. I've reached out a couple of times, but haven't heard oh, back. Okay. That that does not mean I'm going to stop trying. I, I at some point I will get a hold of Popeye Jones and he will be here on Tales from the Association. But that is uh, that's the end of our show for this week. We're uh, about seventy minutes in, and I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Greg Miner, thank you so much for coming to talk to us, and this has been you know this week's episode of Tales from the Association. Hey, thank you, thank you for having me. <laughs>